Well, we're going to have our kids upstairs this morning, so they're going to stay in their service with us. This is a service that we're going to have communion, so I want you to be thinking about that as we prepare, even walking through the message today, preparing our hearts for communion. Uh, this last week, I read about a couple of explorers. They were deep in a jungle on a safari, and suddenly they were confronted with a ferocious lion, leapt out right in front of them. <laughs> And the one explorer whispered to the other, he said, stay calm. Remember what we read in that book, that when a lion jumps out in front of you, stare him in the eye, he'll turn around and run away. The other safari, uh, the other jungle explorer whispered back very quietly, sure, you read the book and I read the book, but did the lion read the book? This morning, I want to read the book, God's Word, about fear. Hands down, the best-selling book, the greatest book that has ever been written on fear is the Bible. It contains the very secret of overcoming our most terrifying and gripping fears in our lives. In your notes, if you have them, pull them out with me, if you will. On the top of your notes, you'll find a verse. And there are many verses that address our fear in Scripture, but this is one of the key verses that helps us understand how do we overcome our fears. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. If you have your notes, I want you to read with me this verse together. Ready? Go. For God has not... I don't hear you. For God has not given us a spirit of timidity but of power and love and discipline. This verse is saying that God has not given you a spirit of fear, but he's given you a power greater than your fear. He's given you a power of his love, a power of sound mind. That's what discipline means, means having a sound mind, thinking and looking at things the way God wants us to see things. God has not given you a spirit of fear. The Bible tells us elsewhere why that is so. In 1 John, it says this, Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In other words, the secret to overcoming our fears is God in you. God's Spirit dwelling inside of us. It doesn't take much to look around, but we realize that our nation is engulfed in fear. Only a few short years ago, we saw a torrent of fear unleash on our nation like we've never seen before with COVID-19. I listened to one doctor not too long ago who wrote a book on fear. And he said, America fell victim to fear unlike any other time in our history. And he coined the term that America has fallen victim to a mass delusional psychosis, meaning that people today are living with a greater anxiety, a greater sense of uncertainty. They're struggling with worry, insomnia. They have drug cravings like they've never had before. Prescriptions have gone off the chart because people are riddled with fear. I want to ask you the question this morning. How many of you came here struggling with some kind of fear? Maybe it's a fear about your health. Maybe it's a fear about your finances. Maybe it's a fear about a relationship. 
Maybe it's a fear about seeing our nation literally coming apart at the seams from within. And we live in this world that seems to be increasing more and more with fear. I want you to know that if you're wrestling with fear this morning, you are not alone. Fear is an equal opportunist. It does not care how young you are or how old you are. It does not care how rich you are or how poor you are. Fear does not care about how big and tough and strong you are. Fear attacks all of us. And what I've understood is this, is that believers, many of us, have read the book on overcoming fear. But here's the problem. We know the promises of God about overcoming our fear. That God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power and discipline. We know that. But our problem is we don't know how to apply the promises of God to our lives. And so we wrestle with fear. And we don't quite know what to do with it, how to put God's promises to work. So we preach faith, but we practice fear. Well, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Now, if you've been walking through this uh, study in Romans with us, you know that not too long ago, several weeks ago, we wrapped up chapter 7 in the book of Romans. And you'll remember in chapter 7, the Apostle Paul uh, agonized and lamented over his internal struggle with sin. He said, I want to do what is good, but I don't. I, want, I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Christ Jesus, or Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's transparent struggle in Romans chapter 7 fills, leaves many people feeling very uncomfortable. I mean, how could this apostle, the great apostle Paul, have such a painful and personal struggle with sin? It doesn't make sense. And this really bothers some. Some people say, you know, real Christians, that is godly Christians, they don't struggle with sin at the level that Paul is talking about here. <laughs> oh, but they do. They do. You see, the key to understanding what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 7 is why Paul is struggling with sin. And this is where people miss it. The reason that Paul is struggling with sin in Romans chapter 7 is he's saying this. Is he's saying that he is trying to live the Christian life out in his own strength. He's trying to live a life that is pleasing to God in his own power. In fact, you see it in the entirety of Romans chapter 7. The word that Paul uses more than any other in the entire chapter is the word I. He says, I want to do good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. Forty-seven times in this chapter alone, he says, I, me, myself, and I. <laughs> in other words, Paul's life is filled with religion. A litany, a list of do's and don'ts of how to please God, but it's empty of God. Paul's struggle in Romans chapter 7. His painful and personal admission was that he was trying to live this life pleasing to God in his own power. And you could never do it. You see, you cannot live the Christian life without God's power 
God's Holy Spirit in you. So now we come to Romans chapter 8. We've already been introduced to Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, which we're going to look at briefly this morning. But Paul is going to answer the question, how then can I live this life pleasing to God with God's Spirit in me? In fact, Paul is going to mention the Holy Spirit 19 times in these 39 verses, which is interesting because he hasn't even mentioned the Holy Spirit, but twice in the entirety of the book, chapter 1, verse 4, chapter 5, verse 5, only twice. And now we come to chapter 8, and he mentions the Holy Spirit 19 times. In fact, one of Paul's favorite expressions of, saying, of having the Holy Spirit in us is Christ in you. It's his favorite way of saying that the Holy Spirit, God the Father, and Christ the Son are inside of you, in Christ. He used this unique expression, which is unique to Paul some 164 times in all of his writings. But in chapter 8, he uses it three times. Verse 1, verse 2, and verse 39. So it's almost as though in Christ, verse 1, and in Christ, verse 39, are the bookends to understanding this chapter of what he's going to talk about. So Paul's going to give us an understanding, or three life-changing truths, if you will, of what it means that Christ is in you. Now, I'm not going to tackle all 39 verses with you this morning, but I am going to tackle 17 verses with you. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to read from New American Standard, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 17. Listen to what Paul says. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For the mindset of the flesh is death, but the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Because the mindset in the flesh is hostile toward God, for it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it does not and is not able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, Though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. 
The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. Great passage. I wish we had more than just the next few minutes to unpack this together. But I want us to see three important truths that can, if you allow them, to change your life from what Paul is talking about here. Paul says three essential things in this chapter. If Christ is in you, then you no longer need to live in fear of judgment, God's wrath. You no longer need to live in fear of living a life of confusion or uncertainty. And you no longer need to live in fear of God's rejection. Let's just look at these three and unpack them one by one as we walk through this passage. So first of all, if Christ is in you, you no longer need to live in fear of God's condemnation, God's judgment, God's wrath in your life. You need to no longer live in fear of God's doom. So the very first verse is one that many of us are familiar with in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. In fact, many of us probably know it by memory. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We looked at this verse uh, several weeks ago. And this verse tells us that we can live a life without guilt. We don't have to live subjected to the constant tyranny of guilt in our lives. You know what I find about this verse? Is that we need to hear it again and again and again and again. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many times do we wrestle through the day and we find ourselves feeling condemned, whether condemned by the world, condemned by ourselves, or condemned by the God of this world, Satan and his accusing spirits, and we have to go back to the promise of God's word that says, therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How many of you wrestle with feeling accusation, condemnation, judgment, and you need to be reminded again and again, there is therefore now no condemnation. Let me make a clarification on this verse that I think is so important for us to make. Is this verse saying, is the Apostle Paul saying that there is no condemnation for everyone? That no one is under God's condemnation? No. Paul is not preaching universalism here. He is saying only those who are in Christ. Only those who have trusted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Only those who have realized that without Christ there is no hope. Only those who have realized without Christ there is no hope. There's no forgiveness. There is no peace. There is no freedom. There is no eternal life. There is no favor with God. Without Christ there is no hope, period. And the basis of our hope as believers, has everything to do with the person and the work of Jesus Christ. You see, the reason there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ is because Christ took all that condemnation on the cross when he died. He satisfied, satisfied all of God's wrath against all of your sin on the cross. He took your punishment in order to give you his forgiveness. He took your hell and gave you his heaven on the cross. This really is a cardinal doctrine of Christianity. It's the cardinal doctrine of the Bible. 
It's called justification by faith. And this is what Paul's been talking about all the way through the book of Romans. That we are justified, that is, we're made right with God through our faith alone in Christ. And justification simply means this. God declares believing sinners. Listen very carefully to this. God declares believing sinners to be right with him based on their faith alone in Christ. Nothing more, nothing less. That God makes us right with him because of our faith in the person and the finished work of Jesus Christ, his son, who took all of God's wrath for all of our sin on the cross for us. That means now that we're made right with God through our faith, this verse is not speaking to everyone, but only to those who are in Christ, and those who are in Christ are the only ones who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've turned from their sins and trusted Christ. Now, I want you to notice this verse does not say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who don't, who don't make mistakes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who don't fail. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who never sin. That's not what this verse is saying because Christians do sin, don't they? They do fail. They do make mistakes. What this verse is saying is that Jesus Christ died for all my sins All my sins past, all my sins present, and all my sins future. He took the entirety of God's judgment against all of my sin for all of my life on the cross. And therefore, that means the day that you and I stand before God as believers in Christ who have been declared righteous by our faith in Him alone, we then do not need to fear God's condemnation. We do not need to fear that God is going to say, you know what, I changed my mind about you. John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth. Those who listen to the message, my message, and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. And then he tells us what that means. They will never be condemned for their sins. Let me read that again. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death to life. When does this verse say you'll be condemned for your sins? Never. He says you'll never be condemned. Why? Because you already have eternal life. Why? Because you've already passed from death into life. The Bible speaks of your eternal destiny before God and your place of righteousness in Christ as as though it's already a finished deal. Romans chapter 8, verse 30, Paul says we've already been glorified. God is looking at our lives as though we were already in heaven with him. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, we're seated at the right hand of God in Christ. That our life is hidden with Christ. Paul says elsewhere in Galatians that we are now citizens of heaven. In other words, what God is saying is that your home is heaven. And it is so sure, so certain, he speaks of it as past tense. And therefore, we don't need to fear God's wrath or God's judgment. Why is this such a big deal? Because there are many believers today, and you might be one of these, who live their lives in constant fear that the hammer of God's wrath is going to come pounding down on you one day. And you live with this constant state of anxiety, of wondering, have I failed God one too many times? Have I disappointed God and he's going to exercise his wrath on me? Have I disappointed him? But yet God has gone through tremendous lengths to tell us of his love again and again and again. 
The Bible says this, perfect love casts out all fear. And that perfect love is God's love for you and for me. God has not called you to live a life of fear in him. He's called you to live a life of security in him, in his love, in his promises, and his faithfulness toward you, his character that will never change toward you. Living without fear of God's condemnation means knowing that I'm in Christ, that the Holy Spirit is in me. I don't know if I can underscore this enough or stress this enough for you. Maybe as a pastor, I see this far more than I'd like to for sure. But I'm reminded on a daily basis of how temporal our lives really are, how fragile they are. And not one of us knows the days that God has ordained for us. This may be your last day. This may be the last time that you sit inside of a church with the body of Christ, hear the message of God. And maybe in your mind you have plans that you're going to go on with your life in the next two years, the next five years, the next few days, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. And God says, no, you don't understand. I hold the plans of your life. I hold the number of days in your life. Are you prepared for eternity? Are you prepared to meet God? And so it's a sobering question that we ask ourselves, have I truly trusted Christ? Or am I just offering lip service to God? Why am I in church today? Am I here because I'm trying to please my spouse? Am I here to try and impress God? Am I here because I'm pretending? Or am I here because I'm truly seeking God by trusting his son, Jesus Christ? The only way we can live in fear or without fear of God's condemnation is knowing that we're in Christ. And the only way we can do that is by knowing that we've truly trusted him as our Savior and our Lord. So first, having Christ in me means that I can live without fear of God's condemnation, God's wrath. Second, I can, live, I can live without fear of confusion. I don't think I need to say this, but you already know this. We live in a very confused world, don't we? We live in a world that is uh, filled with incredible uncertainty. When I think of the world, I, I think of the classic definition of insanity. Do you know what that is? The classic definition of insanity is you do the same things over and over and over and over and over, but you expect different results. Boy, isn't that true of the world today, isn't it? We continue to put our trust in politicians and politics and some form of government and money and fame and prosperity, all these things. We keep putting our hope in the same things over and over and over again, thinking somehow if we give it more money, if we have the right politician, if we have the right form of government, everything will be different. But we keep getting the same results over and over again. <laughs> Paul says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 6. We've been delivered from the fear of this kind of confusion and uncertainty. He says, for the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. The mindset on the spirit is life and peace, real life that we long for. It's peace 
that Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to you, but my peace I give to you, the world cannot take away. It's a peace that Paul says in Philippians chapter 4 that surpasses all human comprehension. You see, our problem is this, that we're looking for earthly rewards, trying to think that somehow we're going to have heavenly results of those. But the reality is this, we can only look to God to find the peace in the life that we actually look for. You're not going to find it in politics. You're not going to find it in the politicians. You're not going to find it in fame or anything the world has to offer. But in Christ alone. Now listen carefully what Paul is saying here. For the mindset of the flesh is death. But the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. He's talking about two different mindsets here. One, of course, is the old nature, and the other is the new. And as a believer, what Paul is saying is that sin no longer controls you. It no longer needs to confuse you. You no longer need to live in a state of anxiety or distress or uneasiness or troubledness. I can now have life and peace because I have the Spirit of God in me. Sin cannot control my life anymore unless I allow it. You see, you have a power inside of you through the presence of the Holy Spirit that enables you to overcome sin and death and all that it brings. You see, sin brings not only rebellion against God, but it brings confusion. Why? Because rebellion against God makes no sense at all. It's insanity. But it also brings anxiety and turmoil. The Bible says there is no peace for the wicked. Why? Because they're living in rebellion against God. Therefore, they'll never know real peace. But the Bible says we can now have true peace because of Christ in us. But sin creates anxiety and turmoil in our lives. James says in James chapter 1, verse 8, that the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. He's a man who's trying to live one leg in the world and one leg with God, so to speak, one leg on a banana peel and the other leg in, the, in a grave, so to speak. Can't do it. So why is it? Why is it that sin creates all this confusion and anxiety and turmoil? What Paul has in mind here, the mindset that is set on the flesh is the unsaved person. And the unsaved person lives entirely for himself or herself. It's all about what she wants or what he wants, their own desires. In other words, the Bible says that they're physically alive, but they're spiritually dead. In verse 7, he goes on to say that the unsaved person is in a constant state of hostility toward God because the sinful mind is hostile to God 24-7, 365 and a quarter. It does not submit to God's law, will not submit to God, and it is unable to do so. You see, what I find in the world is this, is the world continues to do the same things over and over again and again, but have the same results. And if you listen carefully, you'll hear a song being sung around the world. It's the song that Frank Sinatra made famous. I did it my way. I did it my way. And we wonder why there's so much confusion in the world. Because a life that is separated from God, a life that is hostile to God, will always be in perpetual confusion, anxiety, and disorder. 
you'll never find true clarity of why you're here. You'll never find true understanding of what purpose God has for your life until you come to Christ. So what Paul is saying here is the life that is filled with Christ, the spirit-filled life, is that we're learning to live a life of increasing clarity, a greater peace, a life of less confusion and anxiety. I have to tell you that there have been times where I sat down with people who were struggling with anxiety, with fear, with confusion. And you could see the strain on their face. You could hear it in the emotion of their voice. They were captives to fear and confusion. But the moment you begin to introduce them to the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and you tell them that the answer to your distress, the answer to your confusion, your anxiety, and your fear is Jesus Christ, and you begin to show them who Christ is, I have watched people's faces literally transform as their hearts embraced the Prince of Peace. And there was literally a physical change, a complete change of mind and life and spirit as they trusted Christ, the Prince of Peace, and they found life and peace for the first time. Christ came to eliminate the fear of God's rejection in our life, to eliminate the fear of living in confusion, of wondering, why am I here? How do I find or make sense of life? But as well, Paul says that we are in Christ. We can now live in freedom from the fear of rejection. Paul says in verse 15, For you have not received a spirit of slavery, leaving you to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. There's so much I'd like to say in these verses that I feel like I'm just kind of walking over the very tops of these verses. But Paul says that we have received the spirit of sonship. That means we've been adopted as God's forever children. And that means that you never need to fear God's rejection. Now let me kind of put this in perspective for you. All of us, I believe, wrestle with the fear of rejection from others. And all of us have felt that rejection from others at one time or another. We felt the pain of others rejecting us. But what this verse is saying is this, is that if I have God's acceptance, then the rejection of anyone else does not really matter. I do not need to live in fear of the rejection of others if I have the acceptance of my Holy Father, because that's the only acceptance that ultimately matters in my life, and that's security. And Paul goes on to describe that this acceptance is a kind of relationship. It's not just an essential knowledge that we have that God, uh, we're adopted by God, that we're his child, but he says we also have a heartfelt knowledge that when we speak to God, we call him Abba, Father. It's the most personal and intimate expression of tenderness that a child can say to 
a father. Papa, Abba, Daddy. I once had a friend of mine that uh, whenever we prayed together, he would start praying, Daddy, thank you. And I began to look around like, is his dad here? I didn't know his dad was here. But he understood the importance of, the, of this affectionate term in which God invites us in this close personal relationship with him of calling him Papa, Daddy, Abba. What Paul says here is nothing short of absolutely radical and astounding. You see, you and I are so used to hearing that we express our prayers to God as God our Father that we miss the amazing significance of what Paul is really saying here. Let me put this in perspective for you. If you were to read the entire Old Testament, all 39 books, the entire corpus of those books, you would only find the word Father 14 times. And of those 14 times, it is never, ever, ever used by a personal individual toward God, my Father, but it is always used of the nation that God is our Father. Even David, who is a man after God's own heart, never expressed those words, my Father, or personally, Father. Yet when Jesus came on the scene, he spoke of God in no other way except personally as my Father. He used the term some 60 times in all of the three hours or so of recorded words of Jesus. It was not a formal term, but it was in fact the very term that Paul uses here, the Aramaic term of a child that calls his or her father Abba, Daddy. There's only one time that Jesus used God's name formally, and that was when he hung on the cross. And he quoted Psalm 22, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But no one in all of history ever spoke the way Jesus prayed or spoke to God. But Paul says this, now you and I have received the spirit of sonship. Listen to what he says. And because we are his children, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, prompting us to call out, Abba, Father. Now you are no longer a slave, but God's own child. And since you're his child, God has made you his heir. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? That the God who created all that is, Almighty God, says to you and he says to me, you are my child. That is astounding for us to begin to try and grasp, though we can never fully grasp it. And yet God invites us into this kind of relationship where he says, I want you to know I'm your father, but I want you to know I'm not just a father who's distant, who's always away, who doesn't really care, who's not involved in your life, but I'm a father who loves you. I'm a father who is tender and is intimately acquainted with all your life, and I want you to know that I care about you, and I'm here for you. I'm a father that whenever you speak to me, I want you to know you can say, Abba, Father. I want that kind of relationship with you. That is astounding. That the God of all creation, Almighty God, who created the sun, the moon, and the stars, the only one and true living God, says to you and he says to me, I am your father. 
and I desire a relationship with you, then I want you to know that you're secure. I want you to know that you're unconditionally loved. I want you to know that you never have to fear my rejection. Boy, I think some of those powerful things a parent can say to a child is to look their child in the eye and say, you know what, I will love you always. You don't have to be someone. You don't have to do something any more than you already are. I love you as you are. And I fully accept you. My love for you is unconditional and I'll never, ever reject you. Unfortunately, there are many children today who grew up in a home of conditional love, isn't there? Maybe it wasn't spoken, but it was unspoken. That maybe you grew up in a home where you were treated as though love was conditional. If I behave a certain way, if I'm good enough, if I don't do these things, if I do these things, I'll be loved. And what did that do for your life? It left you filled with uncertainty, anxiety, in your relationships with others. And so God comes along and says, I want you to know what your heart really longs for, what you really need, is unconditional love. Love that says, I love you no matter what. I love you in such a way that I forgive you of all your sin, past, present, and future. I love you so much that I want you to know that I'm your Father who's always here for you, always with you. Paul's going to say later on in Romans chapter 8, if God is for you, who can be against you? He's going to say later on that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. That's the kind of love that God wants us to understand that he has for us, that we are his children. Noted theologian J.I. Packer said something very critical and important about being God's child he felt that our ability to grasp what it means that we're God's child is essential to our Christian life. He said, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that distinctively is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Father is the Christian name for God. Isn't it astounding in the prayer that Jesus invites the disciples to pray. They're watching him pray, and they're so amazed by his prayers, not only the power of his prayers, but also the effectiveness of his prayers. And they come to Jesus one day and say, Jesus, would you show us how to pray? And how does Jesus begin? Our Father who art in heaven. He invites us to call him Father in the same level that he himself calls God his Father. Because he wants us to understand the importance of being God's children. I love these words of one adopted mother. She wrote, I stayed with my parents for several days after the birth of my first child. One afternoon, I remarked 
to my mother that it was surprising that our baby had dark hair, since both my husband and I are fair. And her mom responded, well, your daddy has black hair. But mama, said the adopted daughter, that doesn't matter because I'm adopted. With an embarrassed smile, the mom said the most wonderful words she said she'd ever heard. I always forget. When God looks at you, he says, you're my child, so much so that I forget that you're adopted. That's the security of Christ in you. It means I never have to fear God rejecting me, ever. I would imagine that some of you are wrestling with fear of God's rejection, God's condemnation, even uncertainty, because you really don't know God that well. And perhaps you don't know him at all. Perhaps there's never been a time that you've personally come before God and said, Lord Jesus, I trust you to be my Lord and Savior. I acknowledge to you that I have sinned, I've failed, I've messed up in my life. And I realize without you, there's no hope, there's no peace, there's no forgiveness, there is no life. And I need you in my life. I wonder if that's you this morning. Maybe you thought you were a Christian, because maybe mom and dad are Christians. Or maybe because you're sitting in a church, you think that being in church makes you a Christian like being in Burger King makes you a Whopper. (laughs) But you're not really a believer. You've never personally trusted Christ, surrendered your life to him. You're not in Christ, as Paul says. As we prepare our hearts for communion this morning, I want to ask you, to do something that only you can do between you and God. Would you take a moment and examine your heart and your mind and ask yourself this one question. Have I truly trusted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior? Or am I simply giving lip service to God? Have I really given my heart to Him Surrendered to him as my Lord and Savior. And maybe you have this morning, that's where you're at. And you have trusted Christ. In a moment, I'm going to pray with you. If you've never trusted Christ, I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that before we take communion. But maybe you have trusted Christ. And many of you I know, and you personally have. That means that as we take communion this morning, we're reminded as we take the cup, we take the bread... We are reminded in a very pointed and a very personal way that we no longer need to fear God's condemnation in our lives. As we drink the cup, we're reminded that Christ poured out his entire life on the cross for you and for me. He took all of God's wrath for you and for me. All of my sin past, all of my sin present, and all of my sin future. That's what the cup and the bread remind us of. They remind us that we no longer need to live in confusion or uncertainty of why am I here? Where am I going? What happens after I die? Jesus is the only person in all of history who rose from the dead and can tell us what it's like after death. 
he came back to tell us. And Jesus says, you have eternal life when you've trusted me. You've already passed from death to life. When we take communion this morning, we're reminded that we no longer need to fear God's rejection. Maybe you've made mistakes. You've done some wrong things in your life. But the Bible tells us that we confess our sins to him. He's faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the grace of God that is greater than we can understand and deeper than we can search.